0: So I was interviewing staff because we haven't got the building, the building is be renovated and all that. So I will call these people who will apply for the job and I'll meet them at Pizza Hut or at a coffee shop. I didn't know this. I mean, years later, they told me, they conferred with each other. Hey, this guy for real or not? I'm almost their age and I'm like a fly by night and meeting them at a the coffee shop. <laughs> I don't even have a real office. <laughs> you say, don't do luck. try, not to try to. I mean, we all keep
1: together. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 21 of the So This Is My Wife podcast. I'm your host and producer, Lingya, and today's guest is So Tiong Hin. Tiong Hing is a Malaysian director best known for directing Putri Gunung Leda, the first Malaysian film to be selected for the Venice Film Festival and long-listed for the Academy Awards. He has also written, produced, and directed a semi-autobiographical stage play and film Hope, you Mean the World to Me, or hi ki Lo. I was so appreciative of how open Tiang was with his life, of what it was like growing up in Georgetown, Penang, the contentious relationship he had with his mother, whom he always thought when he was young never loved him enough, and with one of his older brothers, who was a little touch, and how that really influenced him throughout his life. His journey becoming a production assistant KO from making commercial TV adverts to music videos to spending two whole years trying, but failing, to get a chance to prove himself as a film director. Until one day, Tiara came calling, literally, with a script for Putrin Gurun on If you've ever wondered what it takes to make it in the Malaysian film industry, the ups and downs, the behind the scenes chaos, and of what it was like being a creative director of the opening and closing ceremonies at the sea games, And this is the episode for you. Are you ready? Let's go. Welcome to the So This Is My Why podcast, where we talk to people about their whys and how they turn them into realities to inspire you to live your best life. And here's your host Ling Ya. And as I understand it, it started for you in Penang, where you grew up in Georgetown, along this road, Victoria Street, known as Haki Sing and I would love to know, in the 1960s, what was it like in that area? Because I understand it was like a Chinese traders' neighbourhood. So what was it like back then?
0: Just some context. is in-law, Victoria Street, is actually parallel to well, key It's like one street away from the, the main shipping where, where all the goods arrived. My great-grandparents and my grandparents were in the business of trading, meaning there's coconut plantations and things like that. And so they had the same thing, I guess, to and from places. And so they stationed themselves at high signal. Where I grew up, actually, the house is like an ancestral home. There are two units joined together. It's kind of like a cafe China House, you know, in Penang. It's really long. But unlike China House, we, we had two units joined together. I mean, to be honest, when you grow up, your world is only that big. I didn't know any differently. I wasn't very adventurous as a kid. Pretty much home and school, home and school, home and school, and weekends. my dad would take me to a movie. For me then, that was the world. I didn't know about UK, I didn't know about America or anything, you know. I didn't even know about the other side of the island. I didn't even know about the beaches and all that until my teenage years when going to school. Then there's all these school outings and things like that. Long story short, I was pretty happy in that world. I didn't expect anything else.
1: And I think you were the youngest of six siblings, right? And there's like an eight-year gap between you and the next one. Everyone else is one, two years. So you're a bit of an unexpected child coming. And your dad doted on you, unlike all your other siblings?
0: Yeah, I mean, my brothers and sisters have always taken pains to tell me how lucky or privileged I am. Because to be honest, I was the only child born after my father went bankrupt. So I guess maybe that kind of changed him as a person or something, or he had more time on his hands than he could Look after me or pamper me a bit. I mean, they also tell me I'm the only child that my dad never hit in discipline. You know, in the good old days, I mean, nobody thinks twice about whacking their kid. If <laughs> their kid gets out of line, you know, It just comes with a serve. You know, you do that, you get wrecked. <laughs> he used to take me to cinema every Sunday. Every Sunday, we'll go and see a movie or two. Sometimes we see the morning show and then we see one afternoon show to follow up. And that is My biggest memory of growing up, taking the bus with him and going to the different cinemas and watching Chinese films and English films. And we sometimes even watched Tamil films, Hindi films even. Were there subtitles as well? When you're young, you just look at the thing and sometimes you just cry and sometimes you just laugh. I remember the two Hindi films very clearly. One was the very famous one and one was Hati Miratati, which is Alison, my friend.
1: What was it that left such a big
0: impression on you? I don't know. I just cried a lot.
1: <laughs> they were very sad.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I still have this ability to be really affected by film. I mean, although I'm in the business of creating this parallel of fake reality, somehow I managed to sell myself that experience even now. And I get quite affected and I get, you know, I get moved and, and taken places with it. It still holds some magic for me.
1: And I wonder you mentioned poverty earlier because as I understand both your mom and your dad they were matchmates they never met each other until they were married and both of them came from like quite well-off families before they got married right and to this bankruptcy so did you ever feel that tension between them that was it something that came up a lot as a child
0: mm-hmm. I think they were quite good at hiding most of it. I mean, of course, sometimes you sense something is wrong, but you don't really know. And also, as a child, you don't have concept of rich or poor. You're just like, okay, this is what I'm having for dinner. You just expect every schoolmate at home will be having about the same meal. You don't know. You have no comparison. What i found out since was that a lot of it had to do with my dad's pride. You now, because my mom's family still had a bit of money, but he didn't want any help from them. So. That was kind of like a source of tension. But to my mom's credit, I mean, she kind of like stood by his side through all this. When in modern circumstances, she wouldn't have stayed. But in those days, I guess the belief system it was different. So standby, truth, thick and thin, sort of thing.
1: And your mom was a homemaker, right? So was she one of the most prominent figures in your life when you were a child? What was she like?
0: She was. And what was pretty amazing about her is that I guess you can see the effort to be not cheerful, but to be buoyant, not to get her down. And she did all sorts of things. I mean, when looking for money, she would like sometimes cook fried noodles and sell outside the house. I mean, at that time, you go, like, Why is she selling fried noodles? You know what I, mean? I mean, of course, because she needed the money. But <laughs> when you were a child, you go, know When times were really bad, I remember we used to sell clothes as bundles. So you go to a shop and they weigh how many kgs that is, or how many pounds that is, and then they pay you for it. So she kind of tried her best, I guess, did everything she could to see us through. Like, let's put it, and
1: you guys had fun as well. There was like one scene, I remember, in the movie you made later of your life where the mom is dancing with Sunny a lot. So was that something <laughs> that you did as a child? Yeah.
0: yeah, actually, I'm glad you brought that up because that point in the movie is really important to me because the whole movie before that is all misery, woe is me, woe is me, you know? I wanted at the end to have the joyful thing because I wanted to acknowledge that it is how we remember things. It's how we choose to remember things. So if you want to dwell on the bad, of course, there'll be some shit. But if you want to dwell on the good as well, there's also good stuff. I mean, our dancing. I mean, those are really, really great moments. That kind of like, if you don't bring it back at the end of the film, it would be so unfair to everyone.
1: For those who are listening who don't understand your backstory, to contrast that with you explaining why it was that this dancing and this joy was so significant for you because you had a bit of a contentious relationship with your mom as well, right? Because of your sibling. Could you share a bit about that?
0: Actually, it was only 12 years ago. Only in my mid-40s or late-40s did I understand what my mother was trying to do. I mean, as a child, there's always resentment. And I mean, in a family of six, it's always a little bit competitive. And since I have my father's full attention and love, <laughs> I thought, why can't I get my mother? <laughs>
1: <laughs> You're the golden boy.
0: <laughs> yeah. So I mean, my silly little head, you think, And like, why is she so hard on me? And why is she so nice to my other brother? And difficult. Let's put it that way, you know? So I never could get my head around it until a conversation I had with my sister. And she kind of said that, well, needs more help. My brother was mentally challenged a little bit. So I just resented it, the circumstances that that created without trying to understand how difficult it must be for him as well. Also, I didn't try to understand why my mother would devote so much of her time to him, to looking after him. I mean, because all parents will help the weakest one.
1: Yeah, I remember there was a the line saying that, you know, if no one loves him, then who will?
0: Uh, yeah, I'm his mom. If I don't love him, who will? Yeah. And also the tagline of the film is pretty telling in that it says, the hardest people to love are the ones who needs it the most. Mental illness on my mother's side. Because one of my uncles is also a little bit touched and so on and so on. So I guess there's also living with that, knowing that as a mother, knowing that perhaps it came from you, I guess she felt a stronger compulsion to help the afflicted son. To the
1: point where, like you, I think your family was trying to put him in like an institution to help him, right? And she resisted,
0: saying, "No, I want to look after yeah. him." Yeah, actually, she. There was one thing she would not even talk about because the the presence of somebody like that, the reason, is very disruptive for the rest of the family. So, I mean, naturally, the rest of the family, whoever's lives are disrupted, always feel a resentment. And rightly or wrongly, I'm not saying it's the right way to go, but you do feel a resentment. Like, why is it affecting me so badly all the time? Almost a palpable tension every time he's around. And it's not something easy to live with in your own home and to be tense all the time is not easy. But regardless of the objections, she would not even consider it. It was only until she died that we acted on it because n- nobody else could keep him in check or kind of be able to talk to him or reach, reach out to him. So it was unfortunate, but necessary.
1: And I wonder with all this, I was going at home, how did it affect you, for instance, in school? Were you like an outgoing person or were you more withdrawn?
0: You know, was really weird. I remember myself as being a quiet kid. <laughs> 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 and then, A friend of mine went to see the film and said, you were never quiet, you were acceptable. (laughs) It can't be right. (laughs) But you see see what I mean? The duality and different perspectives. I remember myself as quite withdrawn and not that outgoing. But clearly, I've been reminded I'm not.
1: (laughs) What were the most important friendships, if you were, that were from in school?
0: I made a friend in school from like to eight years old we were like in the same class all the way until i think form five i think he dropped out of school in form four he left school to go and study i think hotel management it's strange i mean this bond this friendship that we formed when we were young even as adults we had a huge gap where we didn't see each other we still kind of like click the same way as when we were kids so that was really important and also what was really important about that friendship for me is that this is one person he was also a good student in school he dropped out not because he was a bad, but he knew at a very early age what he wanted in 18 years old I just wanted to go and dance or or listen to music or hang out with friends and there's this guy who already knew what he wanted and he, he acted on it at the time when he left school I can still remember the reaction everybody thought wow that's a bad idea you don't even have MCE or did he get his MCE I don't think he did. He went to Switzerland. Well, our parents keep telling us you better study something so you have get a degree to fall back on and all that. But for this guy to actually jump off the plane without a parachute, I mean, he is now very successful at his own chain of restaurants in Penang. In fact, in the filming of this movie, in the movie, there's a best friend who is Bob, right? The Bob character. We shot that in my friend's actual house. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of meta, but. <laughs> Just like that, right? <laughs> yeah.
1: That's wonderful. And I think you also had this friendship with the orientation queen.
0: Yeah. We're still very good friends, actually. I mean, it was one of those fits because she was like the popular girl and everybody was just... And I was a studious nerd. And somehow she just saw something in me and we just clicked and we became friends. She was formative for me. In what sense, sir? At that time, like, I had all these Coca-Cola bottle glasses <laughs> in a spectacles like really thick lenses and everything. She kind of made me go and work part-time to save up enough money to go and make contact lenses. And she kind of taught me how to... Because my mother used to buy my shirts and pants. (laughs) Until I was quite old. (laughs) I mean, by by no stretch, a fashion plate, but to be at least dressed more my age proper.
1: And you guys were going like disco dancing together as
0: well, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she used to ride a motorbike and I don't have a motorbike or anything. she come to my house and pick me up and then take me to go dancing. <laughs> I remember my mom said, who's that? <laughs> like the girl comes in the motorbike to pick you up. <laughs> we are still good friends and i she got father to her son, I mean, she's married and living. we're still good friends.
1: And I think she's also the reason you went to Singapore, right? In 1932.
0: Yeah, basically because the family couldn't afford it. So she kind of like prodded me along. The uncles and all that, they were well off. It's only my father that went in from. Why don't you just ask them? I kind of went to ask and then she made me apply for the scholarship. I could afford to go. And Singapore kind of like opened my eyes to a different world, a real world, if you like.
1: Because this will be your first time leaving family, right?
0: Yeah, correct. For the first time I was living away from home and you just take so much for granted. Toilet paper, lah, tissue, lah, like... House, like your laundry, you have to do yourself. Like. I mean, things you don't even think about. Oh, I don't have a mirror. <laughs> you learn to fend for yourself. Like. You learn to be independent. I mean, because I was quite tempered by my dad at home and also to some degree my mom, this It was initially a shock, but very thrilling at the same time. Because you're not answerable to anyone, you can do anything you want. <laughs> and Nobody is there to like reprimand you. Know? <laughs>
1: And so you were at National University of Singapore doing double physics and math. And what do you remember <laughs> of that
0: course? To be honest, I remember it quite clearly in the sense that I kind of went mad. I went a bit wild because first time away from home and everything is so fun and shiny and new and, and all that. So I kind of completely immersed myself in a good time, hanging with friends <laughs> and dancing and drinking and, and things like that. And then... I only attended the minimum amount of um, workshops so that you can sit for your exam. Because if you don't meet the minimum criteria, you're not allowed to sit for the exam. Unbeknownst to my parents, I was just not applying myself the way they would have liked me to. But it came to a point that when I attended a lecture, that some of my fellow classmates thought I was a super senior. I mean, yeah, seniors have uh, graduated and then they come back to observe so that they can be teaching assistants, you know, so because they have never seen me. (laughs) And also in Singapore, I stayed in a hostel, on campus hostel. And I have learned from some friends since that I'm taught as a lesson to the freshmen. So, I mean, eventually in National University of Singapore, I failed during orientation. The seniors will tell them, don't be like So Tiong Hin." (laughs) messed up and got thrown out. <laughs>
1: oh, dear. <laughs> so did you tell your parents that you got thrown out of uni? Because you were the first in the family to have gone to uni as well.
0: I had to tell them, of course. That's why I didn't go back to Penang. When I told them, they were so nice about it, they just made me feel worse. They just say, oh, you tried your best, just come home. So I did the cowardly thing and I came to KL. Even though I didn't know, at that point, I didn't know anyone in KL.
1: It didn't cross your mind to like maybe stay on in Singapore and try to find something there?
0: I couldn't. Yeah, you're not allowed to and also at that time it was 86 I came home there was also a recession in Singapore at that point I remember people who graduated who couldn't find work are allowed to break their bond and come back having failed there was nothing holding me back you know and you're not allowed to stay on because Singapore has this very interesting social programming that if you are a graduate from our university we would like you to live here but if you are not maybe not
1: so you came to KL in 1986 was that your first time in the city How did you find your accommodation? Like what was it like in the first few weeks?
0: I kind of got one or two contacts from some hostel mates in Singapore who came from KL. And then I got hold of some Penang schoolmates who moved to KL to work. So I called them up and said, hey, I'm here. I need a place to stay. (laughs) Can I stay with you? So I kind of did couch surfing. I would stay like two nights one person's house and then another two nights another person's and then kind of move around. When you're young, you don't think anything about these things. you just, okay, what's my situation? Okay, I'm going to do this. There's no long-term planning and more importantly, there's no embarrassment. If they don't want to help, they'll say no lah. Okay lah, then you look for somebody who will help.
1: What was the plan in terms of jobs though? How were you supporting yourself?
0: I don't know. I mean, I was getting quite desperate because I think I had only about like 10 ringgit or something like that in my pocket. But also, one of the people I met in Singapore gave me a contact for a lady in a production company. I didn't really know what that meant because, I mean, film production is so far away from reality that you never think about it. My friends helped me by feeding me, but, I mean, ten bucks don't go very far even in those days, you know, so. I called up the contact that I was given, and this lady asked me to go in to see her. I went to see her. She didn't have anything, but she thought I was interesting enough to put in a TV commercial. So she said, would you do a TV commercial? I said, sure. How much? She said, 800 bucks. Say, okay. <laughs> we are odd. For somebody with less than 10 bucks in his pocket, 800 is a lot, a lot of money, you know. So I did the TV commercial.
1: What were you supposed to be doing? Were you like modeling?
0: No. no, Actually, uh, it was uh, for Shell Moto Oil. The motorbike oil. I was supposed to be a biker. So I was kind of wearing a hiking outfit and helmet and only at the end I took off the helmet. <laughs> so, I mean, you wear the helmet so that the stunt people can do all that stuff, right? You enjoyed it and decided to do more of this? I enjoyed it. I mean, honestly, I was shit. I was bad because I was so nervous. And, you know, I mean, the, the director keeps telling me you have to calm down, you have to calm down. I say okay, okay. But you didn't know what to do and you feel so awkward being the focus of attention. Everything is just done around you, you know? So that was new to me, but that was interesting, intriguing, because it's everything I, I don't know. And so I decided maybe I should go into advertising or film production. So I looked in the yellow pages. I came across advertising as one of the first things. Actually, I was looking for film production, but I saw advertising first. So I called the agencies up one by one and nobody would see me.
1: Was it because you didn't have the experience?
0: I mean, I was cold calling, to be honest. I mean, they don't know me from Adam, so I just cold call and say, hey, I'm looking for a job. You know, is there anything say no, And that's it. Cold calling, even now, is frowned upon. But I called, got to Ogilvy and Mater, and Ogilvy and Mater, I asked for the producer, and I was put in touch with Farida American. She is the grand dam of advertising, and she was also a newsreader at the time, which I didn't know and she was the head of audiovisual in photography. And she asked to go in. And I went in and she said, okay, I like you, but I don't have a job. But I know somebody who does, who's looking for someone, you know? So she put me in touch with Joe Hasham, who is now mm-hmm. her husband. So I went to see Joe. And I can still remember very clearly because sometimes they remind me about it. So at the interview, I was asked, why should I hire you? Eh? Because I'm good. <laughs> and I got a job. <laughs> it turned out that I was quite natural at it. I mean, I was a production assistant and production assistant, you do everything. Make coffee, you sweep the floor, you carry the lights, you do the casting, source the locations. Because last time, it's not specialized. Like now, when you watch a movie, a TV commercial production and there's a casting department, there's a location, there's a wardrobe and makeup and on. Last time it's one person do everything. So I was lucky to come into the business at that point. Because by going through all the departments, you learn everything. You learn how the camera works, how long it takes to turn things around. You know, I remember casting on the street, you will know, go out to, on the streets and you look up for nice looking people and say, hey, would you want to be an actor? You'd be surprised how many people say yes.
1: <laughs> so that must have been fun going up and asking people, do you want to be a talent?
0: Looking back, it is really fun. I mean, the whole thing was really, really good because it was a complete learning experience. I remember having to take three modes of transport to get to work. Wow. Yeah, because I was crashing with a friend in Baman Mayan, in PJ and the office was right in town near yeah. the General Hospital. So it was two changes of bus, one right from the house to the first bus stop, and then two changes of bus to get to work. And you don't think about it. When you were young, you like, okay, this is what I have to do to get there, I'll do it. That means i got to wake up at six. Okay. <laughs> and then when you finish it, well, you go back the same way. It was really, really interesting for me. Joe was very kind to me and very quickly he promoted me. And so I think in three months, I became a producer.
1: What's the difference between like assistant and As
0: one? the production assistant, you used to wait for the queue from the producer. Producers, so they go and look for a location for this and you go and find wardrobe for this story and then you run around and go and sort it out. But as the producer... You are the one who set the direction, You become responsible for the whole thing. But I mean, I was producer in name, but I was still doing the work myself. So because the company got very busy, so the producer I was working under, I stepped away from her and I operated on my own project for the director. And part of the beauty was that because I didn't know the rules, I went into it blind. You know, I mean, I didn't know that there's a way of doing this and all that. I went to like Manlung and all that. Manlung was a very famous department store in those days. You know, store in those days. So I went there and said, I want clothes to to for a TV commercial. And they said, Okay. Then I arranged their conference room and have the director come to the conference room and review the clothes there. And in those days, it's unheard of. You usually go and buy things and then take it home back to your office and show, sure. you know what I mean? I because you don't know the rules and you just do things that you feel is right and, and Evidently, you become an innovator. <laughs> Only because I didn't know the truth.
1: It's wonderful that Joe gave you that freedom to just do it in your own way.
0: Yeah, yeah, correct. I was very lucky because in those days, nothing is so structured. Everything is kind of free and easier. And um. so he just did it. And I used to kind of like almost lived in the office. You know? I didn't resent it at all. I was just so happy there's something to do and get some money every month, you know.
1: So what about that process? You were a producer and then you end up setting up your own production house, right? Which has offices like Malaysia, Singapore, Indonesia, Like
0: There is a gap there. I was a producer then. I mean, when with Joe Hashim's company, I did quite a lot of big commercials, TV commercials and all that. I think I was there for like two years. And very soon, the kind of industry kind of like know about you, about me, lah, you know? So I was offered a job with an advertising agency. And I decided to take it up as a challenge and I was having Salem and Metro Jaya. Two very prestigious and also cigarette advertising was the biggest revenue for advertising in those days. So it was a huge responsibility. So it was very exciting. And then I was coached by another advertising agency and I quickly jump for the little money I was offered. And I did some things in Tokyo and all that and all that. But I decided that maybe advertising is not for me. I was beginning to think that I missed production. Then I was offered a job in post-production. Post-production, the, a post-house is the one where they do the editing, the color grading, the special effects and all that. And I thought, oh, is interesting. I don't know anything about post-production. So I joined them and I went down to Singapore. Uh, I was posted there for three months I got training. It was an Australian company based in Singapore. So i trained and then i came back to malaysia and i set up the thing for them it's really funny i was 28 i think and i set up a company and i got tax rebate from Maida and everything so they were saying huh you got all this i said yeah we need all right <laughs> we, need, we need tax rebate because you're bringing things from australia it was really really fun for me it was a great learning experience and then one of my colleagues in post-production, actually, and he knew that I also in the post-production company. I was a manager and producer and everything. I set it up. And he said, why don't we set our own company? And I thought, yeah, actually, why don't we? And then we set our own company. And then we had a lot of success with it. So very quickly, we expanded and everything. And it came to a point when I got bored. I mean, three years into it, I think I said I wanted to give up the business.
1: Because you've been doing this for like 13 years by now, right? So it's been quite long.
0: Yeah, something like that. Yeah, correct. And so he said to me, why don't you direct? He said, you love telling me what to do. I said, "Hmm, okay, I'll try it. (laughs) So I started calling people because I thought music videos would be interesting to do. So I called up EMI. I didn't know anyone there. I called them up and said, hey, I'm a film director. I want to do a music video. Do you have anything I can do? Actually, we do. (laughs) Can you come in and see us? So I went in to see them. Then they gave me the two projects. K R U, you know. I mean the budget was I mean I dare to say it was fifty thousand and uh, by advertising standards, fifty thousand is nothing. In those days advertising budgets were close to a million, a few hundred thousand minimum. So I thought, oh, that's very little, but I didn't say anything. I said, okay. Because I'm in the business and I'm my own company, you have all these suppliers you can lean on to to help you. So I called everybody and everybody agreed to help me and we made a music video and Carrie Fanatic kind of launched me because I won like every award in Malaysia, and it was also sent by MTV to represent Malaysia in New York. Little did I know that 50,000 was actually a lot of money because in music videos in those days, you used to do things for 1,000, 2,000.
1: <laughs> How can you do anything with that?
0: That's why you have them walking in the park and you have like them walking by the beach all the time. You know, I mean, nothing against the other directors who did that, but I mean, circumstances are such that they. You know, they had only so much to work with, so they did what they could. What I'm trying to say here is that I was lucky without even knowing it. To get such a huge budget, you know, and I thought, oh, this is so little. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, then I went on to direct a lot of music videos and I thought, I cannot keep asking my, uh, my friends, uh, my suppliers, also but my friends, to do me favours. So I said, okay, I'm going to stop doing it. And I was doing TV commercials at the same time. And then... I split with my business partner and I joined another company to direct TV commercials right. as well and I got bored. Actually the boredom is kind of to do with what I was doing or maybe to do with myself, I don't know. I've always wanted to make a movie but because you're kept quite busy by the TV commercials, every month you're shooting like maybe two, three TV commercials at that time. So you, you have very little time to think or to just stop and work on the script or something. So I decided I have to give myself the time. So I stopped, I think I stopped in year 2000, TV commercials completely, and I wanted to devote myself to film. And seeing the success I had earlier on calling the advertising agencies and then getting a job and then calling the recording company and getting a, a job and all that. So I kind of did the same. <laughs> I called up all the movie production houses and nobody will see me this time. <laughs> Except for two two people, Osman Hafsham and Emma Fatima, they are the two who agreed to see me. But they were very nice, very nice to me. But there was very little they could do to help me. It's a different universe because of my all the experience I had in the short form. I thought that it would be an easy leap into the long form, but little did I realize it's a completely different universe. So I tried and I tried and I tried and I got nowhere. And so then my mother. Passed away and then obviously my money is depleting you know. Like I've not worked for like two years and then I decided, okay, I have to stop. I have to go back into TV commercials because some of the people who knew me in the TV commercial world kind of offered to set up businesses with me. You know, they said hey, come back lah, come and set, we do this together and all that. Then I I decided, okay like getting a bit scary in my situation, so I might go back. So that night, as I slept late in the night, my phone rang. It's a film producer friend of mine in Hong Kong. He's the producer, Daniel Yu, he's a producer for Andy Lau at that point. And he said, Oh, Andy agreed to invest in your film. So I said, Okay. And then I hung up and I went back to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> the next day I woke up. I thought, Did I dream this or did, is it real? You, know, you know? I called him and said, Hey, did you call me last night? He said, is it, Yeah, I did. I called you and I told you the good news and you're just like not very excited. You just hung up. (laughs) I said I was asleep, That's why. So when I was at a point when I wanted to go back into advertising, I got a call that brought me back from the brink. So we explored working together. Eventually, the Hong Kong thing didn't work out, but it delivered me away from going back to advertising. So I went on, went on, went on. It kept me going for another one. I think it kept me going for another nine months. Then I felt I cannot, like, I really cannot continue already because my resources are depleting like crazy. Then I called Hashambo. actually helped me formulate some proposals and things like that. I remember it was Wasaman. So I called him and said, hey, can I book a with you? He said, oh, I can. So then I went to meet him in town. It was at Renaissance Hotel I'm not mistaken. As I was on the way to town, I got a call from Tiara called me and said, hey, what are you doing? I said, I'm on the way for dinner. Because I was in a bad mood already, right? I, I mean, kind of like felt down and sorry for myself. You know? And she said, hey, no, 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 cancel your dinner. Come have dinner with me. I said, no, la, no, no, la, cannot. La. But she was quite persistent. So I, I said to her, okay, after dinner, I call you. Maybe after dinner with you. So I went down, met Habsham told him, I'm going back to advertising and thank you for helping me and all that. Then I was driving back home. My phone rang again, it was Tiara again. So I said, hey, hi, hi. She said, where are you? I said, I'm at the traffic light just before my apartment. So I said, we meet another time. Then she said, oh, very good. I'm at the cafe next to your apartment. <laughs> Can you come and me seen by? What to do? Uh? She was ready at the cafe. Man. So I turned around. I went to the cafe to meet her. When I went, it was her, Mama Khalid and Dominique. I didn't know she wanted to go movie. I really didn't know. I just know her as a friend from the party days when I was going out dancing and all that. So we sat down. I still didn't know. I mean I was so distracted by my own misery. Then we were just having a drink and then she asked I me, mean, What do you think of Putrigo no later? And I said Oh, I think it's a stupid story.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you didn't hold back.
0: <laughs> then she said, why? Why do you say that? I said, because you never know why she turned out a king and you don't know what happened to her. You know, what kind of story is that? You don't know the ending. Then she said, oh, I want to make a Putri Kono Leda movie. <laughs> okay, too late. <laughs> and then, as it turns out, Mama Khaled wrote the script and as it turns out, Dominic, he was a producer. So she said, anyway, here's a copy of the script. Why don't you have a look at it and tell us what you think? I thought, oh, fuck. But anyway, it's truly what I believe. It's truly what I believe at the time, so I just hated it. You know? So I took the script back, I read it that night. And as I was reading it, it was written as an action thing. mother did a great job of modernizing it. Although it was period costume, it was a lot of action, and a lot of fighting. So. As I read it, I felt that the heart of the story was somewhere else. So that night itself, I think I finished reading about two something and I was writing out my thoughts.
1: Your treatment of the script. Yeah,
0: correct. I wrote until like about four something, two hours over, I remember. Was it
1: completely different from what Muhammad came up with? I focused on the
0: love story. So I texted it to her and then I went to sleep. Next morning, quite early in the morning, I think nine something, I got a phone call from Dominic. She said, hey, you faxed Tiara last night at your treatment. Yes, I did. Then he said, very brave, huh? you. I said, yeah, that's how I felt. So I thought I would put it down. He said, oh, you're very lucky. She loves the treatment. I said, oh? I said, then you're on. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in principle, I'm on. And she stopped looking for a director because they were, apparently, other directors they were going to meet with. So I got on board and then started developing it in the direction that I saw it, you know.
1: How long was that whole development process to like beginning to film it? Two years. Wow.
0: About a year, a year plus because she was quite thorough as well. I mean, the production, we wanted to do research. We went to Jogja to stay at the actual palace, met with the palace people to see what their daily routine was like. Because she wants to know how to act like a princess as well. Yeah, what their discipline is like. They lead empty lives. I mean, from the outside looking in, every day they wake up they do prayers, they practice dance. But actually, it's all a form of discipline to prepare them for their role and stay focused on that.
1: Were you doing something on the side as you were developing this? No. How, how else were you supporting yourself then?
0: Um, she was... Carol was very kind and fair. Sarah and Dominic, they were very kind. And, fair and they gave me a, like a, a small retainer over the period.
1: Wow, so you basically all your eggs in this one
0: basket? Only egg, only basket.
1: (laughs) Did you face any pushback? Because this is like a Malay film and you're like a Chinese and you've never directed a film before.
0: I I mean, I won't go into the details, but Mm. there were very clearly unhappy people. I started going out to events with Tiara and Sun and they introduced me to this very famous person. The famous person said to them, with me standing there, I reached out my hand to shake his hand and he didn't even take my hand. He said in point blank to Tiara and Dato, you're making a huge mistake. Oh, wow. Yeah. He said, if, if you give it to me, I'll make sure you have a crate. So you're making a huge mistake. So I was quite taken aback. I had quite a objective view about it. Because the thing is that this is shaping up the, big, the biggest film ever from Malaysia, you know, at that point. These are people who have been in the industry for a long time. And here is this unknown, get this break. I expect them to rejoice for me. You know, I mean? I mean, the reality is there will be some resentment. I was not blind to that I wish it could have been nicer, more pleasant, but I'm also not totally surprised.
1: And you said it was shaping up to be one of the biggest, so was the budget a lot higher than normal? Actually,
0: it just took out a life of its own. Also, you are not aware of the protocol. You don't have any fear in you because I've never made a film before, so we'll climb a mountain and we'll shoot it on the mountain, okay? (laughs) Then we'll shoot it in the sea, okay? Honestly, a lot of my decisions were practical because we don't have a indoor pool or studio that can create a sea or, or a ship. And our set building skills are very limited because at that point we have stopped making studio films for a long time. And I mean, we shot into over two the last studio film, like on the scale of a, a period film was in the sixties. Many, many years since we did historical set pieces. you know.
1: And you guys were building like palaces and harbors as well, right? Yeah.
0: So it was very interesting. Honestly, to the producers' credit, they really wanted to do something that Malaysians can be proud of and that won't embarrass us at the international film festival. It was very clear from the beginning that's what we wanted to achieve. So they also put their money where their mouth is. So I mean, when things came like, okay, if we do this, it's going to cost this much. So the budget grew, no? I can still remember at the end of it when we were cutting the offline of the film, we had an internal viewing, you know. At that point you already decided that the music score is going to be uh, synthesizers because we wanted to save money. We didn't do uh, symphonics. And then at the end of the thing, Sansiri said, How much would a symphonic score cost? He said about one point something million more. And he said, Let's do it. He loved it so much that he was willing really to Okay. <laughs> Contrary to popular belief, it's not my fault that the budget went up. The producers, in particular, must be, uh, I must give them their due uh, because they really believed in what was going on and they really stood by it and supported it completely.
1: Do you have any particular memories of filming that really stood out for you and had like a personal impact on you?
0: The first day. The first day we were shooting in Kenya we were heading to the island in the middle of the lake to shoot and we were in like I don't know how many boats and all heading towards the island and on the island were these barges and this crane as I approached it I, I thought wow this is like a real film like that i like really like a big film no I mean all the while you've just been planning 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 discussing and then this, this is for the first time you see it and and a hundred over crew some days 200 something So it's huge, huge issue. But I mean, the way I I got through it was that I just focused on what I had to do and trusted that everybody would be doing the part because we already had all these discussions and meetings. And then everything will happen. And then, of course, invariably, it happens in some way or another.
1: So in the end, it ended up getting played at Venice Film Festival and was the first Malaysian film to be long-listed for Academy Awards. So how does that normally happen? Do you submit your film for these festivals?
0: You have to be submitted by an official body in Malaysia. And so until that point, nobody has formed that official body to do the submission. And because of the film itself and because of the producers of the film, they felt that it's time we did something like that. And so got together a team to, to form a submission body and say, declare that this film is representing your country and things like that. It was a real eye-opener for all of us because none of us have ever been to an international film festival and the amount of work and the machinery involved to actually get going is immense. I mean, we kind of knew when we landed in LA that we are not going to make it. You know, At that time, we didn't know we are not on the short list yet. But when we arrived, we saw billboards for all the other films and they have special pull in the LA Times on the Sunday edition, they have booklets and all that, all beautifully done and I guess months of preparation for this. We kind of went, hey, let's do this. <laughs> let's put on a show and go, oh my god, this is what it takes. I mean, we got a lot of mileage out of it ourselves. I mean, we interviewed on radio and Television, morning show, and kindly invited to a lot of things. But we were quite involved in awe of the process because, like, wow, it takes so much more, you know? I mean, the film is one aspect of it.
1: Wow. And what was it like going to the Venice Film Festival?
0: Unreal. Yeah, it was just out of body experience. You kind of like, You're kind of stunned into like (laughs) disbelief yourself. Like When you arrive, the the protocol in Venice is that you are made to wait in a holding area and then they'll call you, you jump on the boat and you'll be taken and announced when you arrive at the jetty in front of the venue. So we were a bit late for some reason and so the journey that went before us and then it was us and then after this was Tom Cruise. Your whole movie magazine just came alive and everybody is there. I mean, of course, we cannot get near them, you know, but to be able to see them live, you go like, it was such a thrill. I mean, for me lah. <laughs> and then when we got to the HQ of Venice, sort of the main venue of Venice, and to honour each one who comes, they'll fly your like, yeah. and we were close to tears. I mean, I must say we were close to here.
1: So after that, like, did you make a lot of connections? Were you trying to be able to do international collaborations?
0: Not really. I came back and I spent two years going around to all the different festivals, San Francisco, Commonwealth Film Festival in Manchester, went to... I can't even remember where it A lot, a lot of places. So at least one and a half years left I spent traveling for the film. And then I realized at the end of it, oh my God, I haven't done any writing. I've got no project to think. So I better sit down and, and prepare something and then That took another year, I think. And
1: was this the period where Mi Fang came in?
0: Not yet. She came in at 2.010, around then. After the high of Ushigunong Ledang, I made another film and it was really not successful. You know, it was all around bad experience for everyone involved, not just me. I tried to do something, but it didn't work out.
1: What do you think was the main reason for that?
0: I wanted to do a black comedy. In the end the people involved decided that they don't want it to be a black comedy and decided to sell it as a romantic comedy. It didn't work la, because it was designed to be a black comedy. Then nothing was happening for a while and I kind of got a little bit depressed, kind of like stuck in a rut, you know, you feel like, Oh, I don't know what to do next. Like, it wasn't like the office were pouring in, so so you can kind of like,
1: laugh. oh. <laughs> it's so strange that I would have thought after the high of Putri Gudong Lai Dang that everyone would want to jump on you because you were winning all these awards, you had done things no other Malaysian film had achieved. Actually,
0: the thing that came from Putri Gulong Lai Dang for everyone was that I was too big. I was too big. The things I do will cost too much for them to afford. Oh. It worked against me. because There's a certain skill that Malaysia is used to the appetite for, for investment in film is at a certain level. And there is this film that is like so many more times above that level that everybody was like quite reticent about approaching me. So that's what happened. Even the ones who wanted to do a period drama didn't really realise how much it's going to cost.
1: So how much would it normally cost then for a period drama?
0: Okay, recent, in recent years, uh Maha Wonsa cost a lot of money too and so did honey. I think Hanyu cost $25 million. Neerong is easily $15 million. Around there. When you do a period drama, you have to find an isolated location and you have to build everything from scratch. And everybody you see in there has to be styled and their wardrobe has to be made. Their shoes have to be made. You know, everything you see about them has to be created. So it sucks up much more money than you expect. And that's to even achieve the basics. I mean, we haven't even done a, a gladiator or anything like that, and it's ready at this scale. But if you look at how things are done, you look at Game of Thrones, Game of Thrones, one episode is 15 million US, One episode. 16 million for one episode. We're not coming anywhere near it. To when Game of Thrones first started the very first season, it was 4 million an episode.
1: So you're doing all these things, you were stuck in a the rut, then what happened?
0: I got this call from Nifang. Nifang, whom I met when she was at Astro, at that point when she called me, she was partners with Nina Tan at Red Films, so she called me, she said, uh, how are you? I said, I'm okay. And she said, hey, do you mind if I bring a feng shui man to your house? And I said, this is odd. <laughs> I asked her why, and she said, I mean. I appreciate her for her candor, you know, like she was completely up. And she said, it just seems that you should be doing better, but you don't seem to be doing well. So I, I think maybe you might need your feng shui check. I mean, I wasn't doing well. So my first question was, how much is this going to cost, this feng shui thing? And she said, no, no, it's on me. I said, okay. And then she sent the feng shui person over. And his advice was for me to move out from where I was living immediately. He said, "No, you can't be here. This you will go nowhere in this apartment where I was staying." At that point,
1: because the location, everything was bad. Right? I think.
0: Yeah, he said my front door was in my conflict area, and my wealth sector is in my toilet. And uh, you know, apartment you cannot move things. Your front door you cannot move. Your toilet you cannot move. So he said, "There's no way I can fix this for you." And of course, it was a big problem because moving, you know, you have to pay deposit, you have to find a house, you have to look for the rental every month. So that was another issue. But right? Nifang and Lina kindly uh, advance me some money to enable me to move and then I will work on their next project for them to offset the cost. And I did that and I managed to find a place back in Bangsak and, and then everything started to pick up. Maybe my situation was so dire that anything was up, <laughs> any which way would be up for me. And uh, yeah, I got a couple of things going and then I, I got back on my feet.
1: I think you were like directing TV series and movies and a stage musicals.
0: Correct. So and I did two TV series for them. I did one for Town 3 for Astro first. And then I did branded content series for Connetto. And then at the same time, a friend of mine in Penang, Joe Siddick, he became the festival director for Georgetown Festival. And so he called me and they said, Hey, you want to do something? <laughs> because it was also his first time as a festival director and I've never done theater before. So I said, yeah, yeah, I want to do. <laughs> i want to do emily of emerald here in the story emily is like a child as a a woman and then as an old lady so i wanted to do this emily which is a famous monologue right but i want to do it with three of the most famous playing these three parts playing the young one playing the middle the lady and then playing the old one we're going to do this emily over three nights and every three nights the combination changes the lady who plays a young girl we'll play the old lady the next night and we'll play the middle lady the third night and, and they all switched. So I managed to speak to Poitin and pearly and Dreamlin in Singapore, the three famous enemies, and they all agreed to do it. It took up a big part of Joe's budget, but I mean, he was also very gung-ho and very supportive and he was very excited by it and he believed in it and he, he went through with it. And it was, uh, but I can still remember what Poitin said to me at the, at the end of the process. He said, Youngin, I will never do this switching again i said why i mean she was very serious she sat me down and she said i don't believe i agreed to do this for you but i know for sure now i will never do it again i said why because she said you know we all know the text inside out right because they all played emily many times before but when i split it into young middle and old and then switch their roles every night they don't know at which point do they stop you have to really focus on what the other person is saying and then you say, oh, now it's my cue to go on. So she said, Do you know how big a headache I have every night? <laughs> so you're just standing by, listening, 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 and then go. I'm grateful to all of them for doing this. And they did it beautifully. So in
1: 2014, it's Haiki Sin Law. And actually, this script you wrote all the way back, I understand, in 2009. And you wrote it as a film. Right. So, so something like a semi-autobiographical story of your life when you were growing up and it's something very dear to you. Can you share what was the inspiration behind you starting to write this?
0: Actually, it was for uh, FINA's writing workshop. Oh. There was a FINA's writing book FINA's is the film body in Malaysia in charge of uh, the film industry. So it was to write a piece and then bring it to the workshop and share. Workshop it lah. <laughs> you know what I mean lah. La. Because there are other writers and all that. I felt that after the disappointment of the second film, I felt that I want to do something really meaningful to myself. So I wrote, like what they say, write what you know. I always wanted to write about coming to terms with my family. So I sat and wrote it. It kind of wrote itself pretty quickly. There was a surplus of material actually. Material I wrote, 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 wrote like like vomit. So there's so much out there. Then I had to spend the time to edit. The first round writing was three days. The wow. was Because it's from a lived experience, so you kind of know it. You don't have to create anything. So I presented it, and then reaction was actually mixed with the script. I also shared the script with a couple of close friends and strongly encouraged not to make it. <laughs> oh,
1: wow. How come?
0: You say it, it won't look good for you. But for me, it wasn't a point of looking my looking good or not. It's more for me to get it off my chest, and also like I always say in my interviews before, a, tri- a tribute to my mum, an apology if you like, a little belated but all the same, I think it needs to be stated that I misunderstood her. Mm-hmm. That was the most important thing for me. But even at the workshop, some of the reaction was, "Are you embarrassed to wash your own dirty laundry? You know, in public." For me, it's not dirty laundry. I mean, I don't look at it that way. It's part and parcel of who I am. You know I mean, I'm not going to pretend that I come from an immaculate background or anything like that.
1: And had you already shared the script with your family at the time? Did they know you were doing this?
0: I didn't. Not yet. It was only at the play, when I was staging the play, that I invited them to the play.
1: So that was the first time they heard about it?
0: Yeah, that's the first time I heard about it. Two of my sisters turned out. But it's very interesting, the reaction. One of the sisters said, I don't sound like that.
1: <laughs> but the journey to getting that onto the stage was like, there was a lot of trials, right? I understand the eve before the performance, there was this huge thunderstorm that really yeah.
0: caused a lot of problems. Yeah, I think take the easy way. Like, for example, just to go back to see like in the 2012, we did it outdoors in Fort Cornwall in the open air with a Gamelan Orchestra and with performers. so every night you're like shitting bricks. Oh, please don't wait. <laughs> Because there's no there's no contingency. It's like you're really out there. If it rains, the whole thing is just washed up, you yeah. know? But thank God we, we made it through. The reason why I'm so particular about that is because Georgetown Festival was created to celebrate Georgetown's listing in the World Heritage site. Like, so I want to do events at World Heritage Site. Like, like let's say, for example, this is also a World Heritage Site. Right? And then the third one was obviously Kucompte, which is also a World Heritage site, right? you know? But then it means taking a certain amount of risk. Right? I mean, like I said, honestly, I've been lucky that the people, uh, like Josie Dick, really believed in what I wanted to do and supported it completely and took the risk. Honestly, if the investor or producer don't, or, or like for PGL and all that, if they don't believe in the ideas. You will go nowhere with it. You can think the most brilliant thing, but without the trust or support or belief, it will not happen
1: So what was it that, if you don't mind sharing the story behind, before the stage performance? Because it was quite a big deal.
0: I mean, even the rehearsal process was fraught for me because writing is one thing. It was really quite unsettling for me. Copious amounts of tears were shed. You know, as I was writing it. But when you were rehearsing it, seeing these people be the characters doing things coming alive was really difficult for me. Actors were very, very good about it. Even the people, the production team around me were very good about it. supported me as much as they could. And then the night before the rehearsal, it started to rain really heavily as we were putting up the things. And then lightning struck the top of the sea. You know the, the ornate ceilings with all the carvings on it? Struck the stone carving, the stone carving came crashing down, broke the back screen of a car and cut one of the technicians putting up the stage. And not only that, because the wind and the rain were so strong, we put up a screen. I don't know if you saw the production, we had a projection on the screen before the action starts. The screen came crashing down and we have only started our lighting cues. We haven't even done the walkthrough. I mean, that means the first part of the walkthrough that they stand in position to get the light. And we haven't even finished the audio. But I had to call it off because we had to fix the stage. We have to send the people to, hospital. We have to you know. And it was raining so heavily, we cannot continue. The next day was the day of the performance, right? The performance is at 7.30. So we all stood by after lunch because we were still fixing everything. We didn't finish fixing anything until six o'clock or something. So there's no way we could have a rehearsal because you already have to go into makeup, and you have to get ready, the work go in the wardrobe ready. The audio has never been tested and the lighting they kind of kind of do on their own. is gonna be like this, like that. So I thought, I'm gonna die like a dog. <laughs> I'm gonna really die like a dog, you know? Then the show started. It was magical. Even if I say so myself. I mean, there's been some uh, reviews on it that have been very, very kind. Some like really, really full of praise, but it's magic. It was the best performance ever. I guess because everybody might be on an edge and nobody wants to fuck up. <laughs> adrenaline <laughs> but, is pumping. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All the actors and the technical crew, the sound guy, you know, can you imagine not testing? Anything could have gone wrong, you know? And also on the first night, we were due to start at 7.30. And then before we started, we were reminded that the azan comes on around 7.40. So we had to wait for the azan. It was magical. Because here in the darkened space, outdoor, with the stage and the ancestral place, it's just the small key lights and you hear the azan.
1: And what was your feeling seeing this come to
0: life in front of you for the first time? I bet. (laughs) I think we had four nights performance. All four nights. The first night was especially heavy because of the pressure, but also watching it come to life, you just cannot help but get sucked into this. Can you imagine I've been carrying around that baggage body over 50 years? It's crazy.
1: Because you're doing this as a tribute to your mom, right? Do you feel that release from you when you saw that? Yeah,
0: I feel like less a monster because my hatred for my brother was really not nice. I I mean, I really resented him and I was completely wrong about him. It was unsympathetic. I mean, the nicest thing was one of my cousins came to watch the film. He said, I was so afraid that you would be unfair, but you were not. That was something I strived because it's not a vendetta. It's not for me to shame anyone. It's just to try to tell it as honestly as I remember it. And you know, memory is not the most reliable thing.
1: Do you feel like you would have done it because there was like opposition, or right? would you have still done it if your family had been like very strongly opposed to having your story shown?
0: I think I would, you know, mm. because it's just something I needed to do. But I mean, what was interesting is I wanted to shoot in the flat that my sister lived in. And uh, she said yes initially, but I think a week before shooting, she changed her mind and said no. I mean, it was, it was very inconvenient for me, but I kind of respected that and looked for another place. And,
1: so going back to the stage play, the reception, I understand, was like very, very good. Was it something that surprised you that people really connected with it? Yeah. That you also gave free passes to those who live 1KM within Haikiseng Law, is that right?
0: Only on the first night. Because in the play, you're disrupting their life and the, the noise level and all that. Georgetown Festival decided to do the one show. This was like a thank you to them. The response was beyond my expectations. Best reviews of my career.
1: And I think after the success of those four days, people were willing to fund you to do the film version.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Actually, because when you read the story on the page, it's all doom and gloom. But when you see it performed, there's a certain sense of redemption involved.
1: And it was also the first Penang Hokkien film as well. So that was like, whoa, something different. That was
0: another problem in itself. (laughs) (laughs) When I was trying to get money for the film, I had... Couple of instances when I couldn't have got it from but provided I changed it to Mandarin. Because it's about my family, I just couldn't imagine them speaking Mandarin. You know, to me, it would be so weird and I couldn't get my head around it. I didn't do it and stuck to my gun.
1: So you got the funding and then you started preparing the set, I think, end of 2015. In terms of the cast and the production team, was it very difficult for you to identify people for those roles?
0: Actually, my initial impulse was to use all the same cast on the play. But in film, there were different requirements because film is a much bigger investment and so the producers needed some more famous names. I mean, to the credit of the theatre cast, I went up to play to tell them, you won't be in the film. I forgot to say something about the play. The play, the first night was shocking. When the first night finished, there was total silence, not a single applause. And you go like, then through my tears, I realized what happened here. But everybody was so engaged that they just said, It's quite a, a gut punch as well. And then the applause started, and then it went, it went crazy. And then, but there were people who couldn't even move from their seats. I mean, there were these two sisters, very young, mid or late 20s at the most. And the security guard had to help them walk out because they just couldn't get out. They were so, crying so much. <laughs> <laughs> It's not nice for me to laugh. <laughs> but I mean, no, but it, the impact was there. You never think, never think of it. You know, I mean, that, that it will affect somebody so much. I've been told uh, by all the people that everybody cries, not one person not cries.
1: No, it's, it's emotional. Like I was watching the behind the scenes, and I almost cried just watching the behind the scenes, not
0: even the film
1: no. itself. It's something that's so raw, and you can identify with it.
0: Yeah, theater and film has a way of amplifying truth-seeking. You know, there's something in it that when you watch, how how you engaged by some things and you're not engaged? Is it just good acting or is there some truth? I'm not a great expert on this, but the belief that we all have a built-in bullshit detector. You know, literally your life, you look to somebody and somebody's telling you something and you're thinking, oh, this person's lying. You know, I mean, it's a reflex that you action almost. You don't think about it. I
1: understand you started shooting 1st January 2016 and you walk on and it was the set of your childhood home, right? So what was it like seeing it before you again?
0: Unreal as well. The art department did such a fantastic job. They had some description from me and they did some set drawings and then I said, okay, it's more like this, like that, whatever. But when they they recreated it, it was so real. Um, I was really unsettled by it. And when you see the rehearsal, it's even worse living the memory again,
1: you know? Yeah, because you gave quite a lot of details to them, right? Down to the little bits and pieces of where
0: everything should be placed. They were an excellent team. The whole production team
1: was and what was it like directing the actors and actresses? I was watching all these interviews saying that like at the end of shoots, you guys were all crying together because it was so emotional. (laughs) And I think one of them said I've never cried with my director after doing
0: a piece of work. You are the first director sometimes cry before me. (laughs) Which is true. Yeah, I get really engaged. I mean, even as an audience, I get really engaged. engaged.
1: What was the thing that stood out for you the most in the entire filming?
0: You were safe from the brink of disaster so many times on the shoot. I couldn't get into my school. And I was just talking to a friend. Say, why don't you take my son's school? My son's school is very pretty. And then I was looking for a warehouse to be like a studio where the shoot And he said, Hey, he owns the cinema, you know, the empty cinema. So he said, Why don't you use my cinema? <laughs> okay. So, I mean it became even more resonant. It been shot in a cinema that was in the story where my mom and I used to go and watch a TV. When we shot in the cinema, we built the set and everything, and then night before the shoot, there was a flood. Somebody forgot to turn off the tap. The whole studio was flooded. So I got a call very early in the morning from my co-producer. And he said to me, hey, there's a flood, but we're managing it. So we managed to drain the water. And luckily, it didn't damage the set. But what was fantastic about it is that because the day before we went in to rehearse, and it was really dusty. And then because of the flood, it was clean and all that. So something good came out of it, although it felt very much like it was a disaster as it happened, you know. I must say for the record that the support of the production team is pretty amazing, you know. Everybody kind of propped me up. My DOP, Chris Doyle, my first AD, my co-producer, everybody went the extra amount.
1: Kai Kisina was released to critical acclaim. How did your family
0: feel? The most used adjective was brave or courage. I don't feel particularly brave or courageous, but it just felt that it was necessary that I do it. There's nothing else but that necessity on my part.
1: And I read as well, you were doing this film because you wanted to find your true voice identity as a filmmaker. Do you feel that that happened as well?
0: Okay. I mean, I would say it's closest to my true voice, but I've also come to the realisation that there's no such thing as a true, true voice. Because you're relying on a cameraman, you're relying on a director, you're relying on an editor. There's so many elements of it that has other people's contribution. It's close to my voice, but I realised that maybe it doesn't truly exist unless you edit everything yourself, unless you shoot it yourself, you know, the expression of it will always have some interpretation.
1: Is it possible for you to define what your true voice, if you will, is?
0: I think to some degree I'm sentimental, largely I'm sentimental and also optimistic. But in all the work I do, there's always someone who dies. (laughs) Okay, I didn't come to this observation all by myself. Somebody told me you realize it's all your friends, somebody died.
1: Because it makes the people who are alive more precious, I suppose.
0: It kind of escalates things, puts things into yeah, focus. And also there's also underlying theme of love. Maybe parental love or maybe romantic love or whatever. There's always a belief in the purity of love.
1: Looking back, is there anything that you would want
0: to redo? I think it's quite safe to say no, that I'm 100% happy with anything that they've done. I, don't, I, I would safely say that, you know. But at the same time, would I do it any differently? My answer would be no. At every point, I did the best I could. Sometimes the best you can is great. Sometimes the best you can is not so great. So you just have to live with it.
1: And I like with the release of this film, there was also the love campaign that was launched by Um, Astro featuring five families. I thought it was very, very special that it wasn't just your story, but other people's stories as well, including a mother with a child who had mental challenges as well.
0: Correct. Yeah. You see, that's what a lot of people failed to see when they first read the script. It's not just about my family. It's about the situation that we all invariably find ourselves in some degree or other. Every family is the same. There's a lot of love and there's also a lot of resentment. At various points you ask that somebody asks you, how do you feel about your mother? Oh, I hate her. Oh, I love her. You know I mean? And and they're both true. It's not that you're lying. That's what makes it so special. How are brothers and sisters so close to each other, aside from growing up together? I mean, a lot of times brothers and sisters, although they grow in the same house, they grow up separately. They don't really do everything together except eat meals together. And yet, there's this really strong bond that ties us. I guess because you see every aspect of them, you come to accept even the not so nice, not so pleasant aspects. That is the basis for a stronger love.
1: So, this film was released in 2017. And that same year, you were also doing the Southeast Asia Games. You were the creative director. Yeah. How did that come nah. about? Because you were doing the opening and the closing ceremony.
0: Yeah, and the para games as well. Yeah, I've been a tremendously lucky person. Growing up watching cinema, I never imagined i will be involved in any way because it was so far from my reality. And for me to end up being a director and rather successful one in the sense that I can sustain myself based on what I do, it's already a big gift. It really took me by surprise. Because when I was making my third film, Go Rehu Re, which is a musical tribute to Sugiyaman, I contacted Sudiaman's manager before, Darani, and I told him I'm making a film about that. And then he said to me, actually, you don't have to get any clearance from me because the rights to the songs are owned by EMI and all that. You know what I mean? So I said, no, 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 it's not. I'm, it's just a courtesy six years before the season. That was the only contact we had. So thank you very much. And then 2016, he called me and he said, hey, Yonghae, want to have a drink? Sure. <laughs> you know, like, I don't know what's going on. So I had a drink and then he said, Would you be interested in doing the sea game? I said, Yeah, I said it's a pitch. Would you be interested in to pitch with us?" So I said, Yeah. We were given a very short time to come up with this thing. I think two weeks or three weeks. So I was locked myself in and went, did all my research and all that and came up with the concept for it and, and and detailed it out. Presented it to them first internally and they loved it. And then we presented it to the ministry and they loved it and then we were surprisingly appointed because these things are usually done way before it was the quarter 2016 that we pitched
1: wow and the sea games was like the following august what was the experience of doing that it was wildly different from a film
0: (laughs) it is wildly different and i mean the creative process is the same but you're dealing with Half of thousands. There were three thousand people involved in the show. Again, you got to trust. You got to trust that everybody will do their bit. You got to trust that people won't let you down. If you go and worry, you cannot worry for three thousand people or four thousand people. Is the person going to get enough sleep? Is the person going to get injured or wake up or come on time? You cannot. You just trust. Trust that. Okay, everyone, we are doing this. We want to do this, right? Yes. Yeah. I've got no great advice or anything, but. I operate on the belief that everybody wants to do their best. So you just share your vision. Of course, sometimes there'll be challenges. Some people will you why. and you explain the best you can? And then you actually rely on them. That's the only way you can get the result.
1: And do you feel like being involved in the SEA Games had a big impact on your career after that? Like, what was your plan after?
0: There was some interest, like, for events and all that from out of the country. I went for the pitch, but it didn't happen. A couple of other things that uh, we're talking about locally as well. They wanted to take a show and go on the road tour internationally with it. So a lot of interesting possibilities that hasn't landed yet. So maybe the time is not right.
1: Because how has COVID impacted you and your industry?
0: Ah, I think nobody saw it coming. I don't think anybody was prepared for this. I mean, our industry is hand to mouth for the most part. I'll be very honest about it, and it's not the most lucrative industry. So, for a lot of the industry practitioners, it's a really, really rough time. You can only try lah. Every time you get an opportunity, you give it your best shot, and you don't know what will happen. It might fly, it might sink. Who knows?
1: And we talked about this a little. Off air before we started recording, which is the question whether you try to work outside of Malaysia. I wonder if you could share a little bit about the realities of working here in your industry.
0: Yeah, I've always wanted to have an international, if not regional, career, just to see what it's like. Because in terms of Malaysia, kind of like done a lot of the things that I wanted to do. I want to see what's out there. How do people do it differently? How do they do it bigger? How do they do it better? I've made some headway to some degree, China in particular, but it never really panned out for me. I'm still trying. It's not that I've given up, you know, so I don't know whether it might be better in the future.
1: What do you think is the biggest issue?
0: I'm not big enough. not known internationally and neither am I known uh, regionally.
1: But how do you make yourself known? Like you need the chance, right? Right.
0: You need that one break. You need that one break, same as Putri Gunung Lejang, I need that one break. And I haven't got that one break yet. I don't know, I'll keep knocking on the door. Let's see what happens, you know?
1: Do you feel it's important to move to those locations? Because I was interviewing some musicians and they said, I would have never made it this big if I stayed in Malaysia.
0: There's some truth in it, but it depends on where you're at. If I were 30 years younger or or even 20 years younger, I would do that. Where I am right now, I'm kind of hanker for a comfort zone. You don't want to displace yourself completely and then keep on gobstersing at my age. I would like the terms to be a little bit more encouraging. I don't know whether it will happen or not. Not that I'm sport, but the thing is that as important as it is, I'm not going to uproot myself completely and put myself through the grinder and crawl on broken glass to get it. Not anymore. So maybe that makes me less competitive, I don't know. But this is the frame I'm in at the moment.
1: And for those who are just beginning to enter the industry, what would your advice be for them?
0: Anywhere you are, actually, the key is determination. Honestly, I've been in the industry for over 30 years, and I've seen much better that people that not make it. You have to really stay focused and you have to really want it. That's why I said maybe my not wanting it so badly, but even locally, you have to give up a lot to stick to it. I mean, I remember in my days when I even... As successful as I was doing TV commercials and all that, you can see your other friends doing so well and having cars and having houses and everything. Not that they are the most important thing to me. I mean, that's the measure. So you got to go out there and be kind of like the artistic black sheep. <laughs> I mean, that is, oh, he's the one in the art. Okay, thank you. <laughs> but you take it. You take it because that's what I chose. I see it out there. I'm not going to complain about it.
1: So all this time you have never felt your love for the industry diminish in any way or become jaded?
0: Myself? It's a constant struggle not to be jaded. It's so easy to fall back on bitterness and blame everybody else for everything, circumstances. A lot of times is you as well. You know, you've got to take responsibility for it. Sliding doors, right? Whether you choose to do this and not, to return the call one day l- earlier or one day later, like it changes things.
1: Well, Tionghi, thank you so much for spending so much time with me. I normally end with these questions. So the first one is, do you feel that you have found your why?
0: It seems to be shifting. What I find is that your priorities change. So I don't know. Every time I think I found my why, something happens and then you realise that maybe you haven't found it. (laughs) So I don't have an easy answer to that.
1: And what kind of legacy do you want to leave behind?
0: That I tried my best every time.
1: And what do you think are the most important qualities a person should have to succeed as you have in your field?
0: I think sincerity. I mean, determination is a given, but determination will get you further than even talent, to be honest. Like I said, I've seen so many other better people in my industry who have not had the opportunities I did. They are better, but I'm luckier, I guess. So don't let it get to you. Success or failure, you know, it's all temporary. You just... Enjoy the moment, stay in the moment and do the best you can. That's it. The work itself is a reward. Anything else is a bonus.
1: And where can people go to connect with you and find out what you're doing and support you?
0: I think the easiest is Facebook. I'm actually on Instagram as well, but I'm not really active because I'm of the generation that one social media outlet is there now.
1: At least you have Instagram.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Not that yeah. old. But... Facebook is the most easiest to get me to see what I'm up to. Just saw Tiong him.
1: I will put all the links in the show notes so people can find it. And is there anything else that you would like to share, or talk about that we haven't covered yet?
0: I have this favorite phrase I use, uh, surrender to the universe. The universe wants what's best for you. Go with the flow. And something that happens to you that might feel like a disaster might actually be a silver lining.
1: And that was the end of episode 21. The show notes can be found at SoThisIsMyWhy.com forward slash 21, which includes the transcript and links to everything we just talked about. If you want to hang out, we also have a private Facebook group to keep the conversation going. And some of our previous podcast guests will also be showing up for a limited time to answer any of your burning questions. To join, just head over to Facebook and look for So This Is My Why. And stay tuned for episode 22, which drops next Sunday. Because we'll be meeting a Sarawakin Sape player who is making waves in the local international scene for her playing and mission of keeping the indigenous cultures and heritage alive through song, dance, and so much more. If you want to know more about the Malaysian Indigenous culture, just subscribe to So This Is My Why, available on any of your favorite podcast listening platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify, to get alerts for when this episode is released. See you next Sunday!